Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like? They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. State lawmakers budget differently than federal lawmakers. States tend to be bound uh, by rules that require them to balance their budgets, or at least try to, while the federal government is happy to spend more than it collects in taxes. But like the federal government, there is a never-ending stream of spending interests, and their representatives who approach lawmakers with arguments about why they should get more money. Now, one person who has a voice in his state's annual budget debate is Van Skin of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a free market think tank based in Austin. He advocates that the state budget ought not grow faster than the rate of population growth and inflation, and he tries to hold his lawmakers accountable to this conservative Texas budget. Uh, Vance, I first want to go through some of the basics of budgeting. Who gets to make the decision about how much to spend and on what in Texas? Well, it's it's a pleasure to be with you today, James, and um, uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing here on the podcast. And just in general, um, really do appreciate that. Uh, It's quite fascinating, really, when you think about how the budget process happens. And in, in Texas, we have a biennial legislature where they meet for 140 days every two years. Uh, so they're coming in to Austin to create a budget that's going to um, appropriate funding for the next two years. So there's a lot of guesswork that's involved. There's a lot of committee meetings. There's um, each agency will put forward their legislative appropriation requests a few months before session actually starts to get this process going. Um, and that gives the members of the Senate Finance Committee and the House Appropriations Committee um, an idea of where they should start to set priorities within a budget, because ultimately that's really what a state budget or what I would argue any governmental budget and even our household budget is, is a set of priorities. And so in in Texas, we have the legislative appropriation request from state agencies. We have the governor that issues their budget proposal early on, uh, and then the Senate finance, House appropriations, and then they start going through their whole process of hearings and everything else until they, they, they keep making the, the sausage, if you will, uh, throughout that process. And, and then they fa- pa- pass a final budget that then is signed, um, hopefully, by, by the governor. And, and that's really the key process here in Texas, like it is in you know, many other states. Mm-hmm. But as a practical matter, is 140 session days enough time? It is. Uh, they, they, it is overall. Um, now, they will argue that there are some other items maybe that they didn't have enough attention on. For example, you know, we're in our second special session here in Texas. Um, there was an incomplete regular session where things like election integrity uh, reform wasn't done, wasn't completed. Bail reform wasn't completed. And some other, other items that they then put into a first special session. Um, and then we had a situation where the Texas Democrats ran to D.C. You might have heard about that. They didn't have their voice heard. So we didn't have a quorum uh, for the first special session. And now we've started a second special session. And who knows how many more we will have until some of these key things happen. But with all that said, there was a budget that was passed. And as we'll get into that budget, what I would argue is a conservative Texas budget. Mm-hmm. 
How much, uh, uh, to still go over some of the basics, uh, how much does a uh, influence does a typical legislator have over the budget? Well, it would, that's a good question. Um, many of them don't have that much influence. I mean, it's really those that are on those budget writing committees. In Texas, it's the Senate Finance Committee. Um, in the House, it's the House Appropriations Committee. So you ask those members, and they usually have a, at least a pretty good idea of what's going on with the budget. You ask the other members who are not on those budgets. So, for example, in Texas, we have a House that has 150 members, and only a slight number of them are going to be in the Appropriations Committee itself. Um, and, and I believe it's around 20 of them are actually on the, commi- the House Appropriations Committee. Well, that means the rest, the other 130, are not going to have a good idea of what's going on with the budget. Similar thing in the in the Senate. We have 31 senators, a select number of them. I believe about 10 of them are on Senate finance. So only a third of them are getting the the inundated with the amount of information that's all within the budget. And we have a budget that's almost $250 billion over a biennium. And so that's a lot of taxpayer dollars that we need to have more interest in and to make sure that every member has as much information as possible which is another reason why, you know, Texas Public Policy Foundation finds that it's very important to provide information about the budget, not only to the public, but also to the members and provide them with some of these key resources along the way. So as a practical matter, then, like how do those legislators who don't have uh, a large influence on the budget uh, vote? Like what determines how they're going to vote on these budgets that they didn't have a large influence on? Well, as in some other matters where you have subject matter experts of particular members of the legislature, um, oftentimes the ones who aren't the subject matter experts will look to them for guidance. Sometimes they may even look at the light on the screen as they're going through and voting, and they'll say, okay, um, uh, legislative member X voted yay, I'm going to go ahead and do that as well. Or nay, you know what I mean? So there, you'll see yeah. a lot of that going on. But there are others who will be um, steadfast in wanting to learn more about the budget process. And so mm-hmm. they will turn to groups like the Tech Public Policy Foundation, for example, or mm-hmm. others that are around there to learn more about what's in the budget. Um, we also have what's called the Legislative Budget Board, which is a group that acts in some sense like the Congressional Budget Office at the federal mm-hmm. level to provide information about the, doing the fiscal notes along with our Texas comptroller, but also providing a good breakdown of different articles of the budget. We've got 10 articles of the budget here in Texas that range from funding the legislature to healthcare, um, education, and so forth. And so th- there will be breakdowns throughout the legislative session that even the members who aren't on Senate finance or appropriations that are really engaged with that budget writing process can still have information and insight on having a good, a better idea of how to, how to vote at the end of the day. How much power over the budget does the governor have? Very little in Texas. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got the power in the sense of he, he brings up a proposal at the beginning of session, say lays out, you know, his priorities or her priorities, his priorities right now with Texas, Texas governor, Greg Abbott um, provides the priorities for session. Uh, but then it's really up to the committees. Now, some of his some of his staff will go along and, and and talk with the committee members and things of that nature. And there could be some gamesmanship like there often is in politics and negotiations. You give me this. I'll give you that. Um, and then, th- though, at the end of the day, the way that the governor does have some power is to have a line item veto. 
We've got a line mm-hmm. item veto for the governor here in Texas, um, as do many states. And that allows for um, him to have uh, quite a bit of power in the sense that if you do something that the governor doesn't like during session or remove one of his you know, pet projects, if you will, whatever that may be, um, that he has the power of the pen to come in and line item some of the things that you have put in or one of the other bills that you may have passed. So that does mm-hmm. give the governor some power. But I would say during the process itself, there, there is a limited amount of power that goes on until the passage of the bill uh, of the budget. Mm-hmm. And just for listeners, uh, budgets come out in line items, and we're going to spend $100 million on you know, the University of Texas this year, although maybe it's a little different. Uh, 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 funding's different from there. That's how we do it for universities in the state of Michigan. And uh, if the governor wants to, they can just say, nope, we're not going to do that and cross that line item out of the budget. Same thing with some rules and restrictions that get made upon appropriations. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, James, um, I don't know how it is there, but we have a strategy-based budget, so they're done by strategies. And so you'll have education or University of Texas, and there will be other line items underneath the University of Texas, mm-hmm. which uh, we have been trying to move us closer to a program-based budget. That way you can actually line item each one of the programs, because right now if you line item that one, it, all the other ones kind of collapse into that one. And mm-hmm. so it can be a resistance, if you will, of doing too much line item vetoes throughout the budget. Uh, we would like to see them move to a program-based budget. I think that would be more transparent for taxpayers who fund government, um, but also allow for the governor to have a little bit more authority at the right at the appropriate time when, when necessary. Mm-hmm. Doesn't the governor have the ability to veto the entire budget? Yes, yes. So that is another way that they have some uh, they have some power. That they can they can veto the entire budget and force them into a special session. Um, if if the veto, if the budget is vetoed too early throughout the legislative session, it can go back through the legislature and then they can override the veto. So that does give back some of the power to the legislature. Mm-hmm. How much does partisanship matter to a legislator's budget preferences? It matters quite a bit. I mean, um, usually right now is not as typical with the Democrats running out of town in the house um, because the election integrity bill. So they, you know, there's been a lot of strife between the two parties, Um, but that's not always the case in Texas. There usually is a lot of bipartisanship, for example, on the budget. um, I want to say it was a unanimous vote at each stage throughout the process when the Senate voted on their budget. um, So that what we do in Texas, which is, is similar in some States, but one session, the Senate will lead the budget. So this session was SB1, Senate Bill 1. The next session will be the House that will lead it. So it'll be House Bill 1. So it started in the Senate. They passed it unanimously. Then the House had their version, which is slightly different than the Senate's. They substituted it in, meaning they just changed it out, voted on it, and it was passed unanimously as well. In a situation where, you know, it's, it's, it, we have a majority of Republicans in both the Senate and the House, but it's a dwindling majority in both of those. Um, and so you do you do want to get some of your fellow Democrats on board as being as, as those Republicans who do have the majority. And in fact, they got a unanimous decision. So um, there is a lot of bipartisanship, uh, even in the budget process. Now, that's a little different from the reputation that Republicans and Democrats have over their budget, which is that Republicans only want to cut the budget and Democrats want to ramp up spending. I mean, does it work out that way in Austin? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great point, and it's it's quite shocking to some extent. Um, but the things that were in the budget, I, I guess one could argue that they even the Democrats felt like we were meeting they were meeting the needs of the state <laughs> because they were passing a budget, you know, that was with under population growth plus inflation, which I think is a good measure of the average taxpayer's ability to pay. They also put six point one billion dollars into maintaining property tax relief from last session. Uh, which meant that that money was not going to grow government. So that's good news. Uh, and so when 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 Democrats look at their constituents, they see that 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 the Texans are being hurt by higher and higher property taxes across the state. They they may see that we we need more funding within transportation, and some of that was being provided within the budget that was put in place by leadership who are Republicans. And so I think what you see is you get this bipartisanship sort of effort that goes in um, that says, you know what, we might not agree with everything, but we agree for the mass majority of what the vast majority of what's in the budget. And so they go ahead and vote along with it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it to get bipartisan support for a budget, everyone agrees we need to pass one of these things. They're very important. And I, I think there's. There's this, uh, this understanding that we'll go along with it as long as we feel like we're being heard and as long as like you don't just stonewall us over everything, um, especially in, in the case if they don't have like the votes to really do anything or change anything. Yes, that, that's right. And, you know, I, I, I think um, at some point you you just say, look, we're going to we need to pass. To your point, we need to pass a budget <laughs> and we can only do so much. So if I vote against it. What's going to be the benefit of doing so? You might be able to go home and say, I voted against the budget. But at the end of the day, the, the budget's going to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, you know, this goes into, so I'm an economist by training. I have a PhD in economics from Texas Tech University, taught for a couple of years at Texas Tech, and then went to Sam Houston State University, taught for there for, for a couple of years um, before I started at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in 2013. Um, and, 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 and my reading and everything else is, is one of the areas of economics that I'm really a fan of is public choice economics. Uh, James Buchanan is the economist, along with Gordon Tullock. Uh, and they talk about how, you know, out in the private sector, we have these rational agents that uh, weigh their marginal cost and marginal benefits, as we do in order to satisfy our desires. Um, but politicians are also rational. It's just that they have a little bit different mechanisms of cost and benefits in mind. Because it's not just the private cost and benefits like we have. It's also about winning elections. <laughs> and so they've got to make sure they bring home some of the, the bacon to their constituents. And so if you don't vote for the budget, that's going to upset leadership. And if leadership gets upset, then some of your bills may not get hearings. Some of your bills may be get vetoed later on in the process. And so there are always these gamesmanships, um, if you think about game theory, that are being done in the political process. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because theoretically, like you have a bunch of these legislators, they're in different parties, they should, uh, they're in different districts, they have different priorities. It should be incredibly difficult for them to find consensus on, on how to pass a budget. And yet there's this expectation that you're going to, there's so many people who rely upon this one and all of the lobbying forces in, uh, in and around the Capitol are very much interested that you pass one of these budgets and somehow that uh, greases the wheels enough so that the, what should be an impossible problem gets solved year after year. Yes. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's a great point. Um, I mean, the number one thing that they have to pass is a budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so it, yeah, state doesn't operate without one. No, that's right. That's right. So I think in that sense, uh, Democrats and Republicans have to come together, you know, and say, look, what's going to be best for the state, uh, even if to your point to where they're going to disagree about the details and where the priority should be. But they understand that you're still going to need to fund some form of government throughout the process. Now, one of the default assumptions that uh, go into this budget process in a lot of places is that we're going to budget for every single dollar of revenue that we have. Mm. Um, we have a balanced budget requirement. We could spend less, but, um, but we're going to use all the resources that we have uh, available. And you're actually working to change some of that assumptions. So explain what you've proposed and, uh, and, and how it works. Yeah. So, I mean, you have 49 states except for Vermont that have some form of a balanced budget requirement. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're, you have the situation to where you're going to get the revenue that comes in and maybe we should spend every dollar. And I think to some extent, Republicans and Democrats do want to spend every dollar, <laughs> you know, depending mm -hmm. on what those priorities may be. It just depends on how you want to do it. And mm -hmm. I think what we've been working on at TPF for a number of years is to look at, look, even in Texas, um, Texas turned red. If you think about it in political terms, not to get too much into that, but turned red in 2003 where the Senate and the house were majority of Republican, but, but that didn't necessarily mean that the spending restraint came into fruition right away or mm -hmm. was consistent over time. There may have been one biennium where it was, but then the next biennium it wasn't. And so we saw that for a number of years and so in 2014, uh, and really in 20, the legislative session for 2015, we came up with what was called the Conservative Texas Budget. And it was based on the sound research that's been done out there for a number of years um, and that we've been building on as well here, but about the importance of limiting, uh, of having a fiscal rule. That's the key part. Having mm -hmm. a fiscal, fiscal rule, which a balanced budget amendment is a type of fiscal rule. Um, and that takes away some of the discretion that's in place to allow for more consistency, certainty among the private sector, and to make sure that government doesn't grow too big and crowd out the productive private sector. And so by looking at that research, we said, well, what is the best measure maybe we should use to limit government spending? Um, and, and, and what we came up with was, let's look at the entire budget. You have state funds, you have federal funds. The combination of those is the total budget. Um, and some say, well, exclude federal funds. We didn't want to do that because really the footprint of government, the amount that's actually being spent of our tax dollars is the total budget. And so we use the total budget and we use it based on the growth rate of population growth plus inflation. Now you ask, well, why that measure? You have other economic measures you could use. You could use GDP growth, personal income growth, uh, population growth times inflation. There's a number of other metrics that are out there. Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, their TABOR, um, they use population growth plus inflation, um, and it's been changed a little bit over time, but I still think it's been a really good measure to use, and that was kind of the foundation for what we wanted to do here. We knew that we probably weren't going to have uh, be able to change the, sp the spending limit in statute, which is what our ultimate goal was. So what we did was we said, what can we do externally? What can we do as the, at, at a think tank, right? A do tank, as we consider ourselves. We're always going down to the Capitol and testifying and meeting with members and things of that nature. And so what we did is we secured this conservative Texas budget. It was the entire budget. It was based on population growth plus inflation, which is a good measure of the average taxpayer's ability to pay. Well, why? Well, if you have an increasing population, that's more people that are paying taxes into the system. And if you have inflation growth, um, which we use US CPI, so state population growth, US CPI, 
It's a good measure of the that's correlated with wage growth over time. And so that allows you to pick up on the, the wage growth and you add those together to allow for some of the economies of scale that happen in the private sector to pay for government. And that gives you a good metric to use. And we put that out there in 2015. And lo and behold, in 2015, 2017, 2019, and now 2021, if you take the average growth of the budget, it is now well below population growth plus inflation. If you take the five budgets before 2015, average growth in the budget was 12%, and population growth plus inflation was only seven, a little over 7%, so well above. The four budgets since 2015, the average growth of the budget has been about 4.8%. Uh, and the average growth of population plus inflation, this is over a biennium, okay, is 6.2%. So well, a full percentage point below population growth plus inflation. So we're starting to correct the, the excessive spending that we had before that. We still got work to do, but this is a path to providing less spending and lower taxes over time to have a more flourishing economy. But your point is just uh, you're telling lawmakers you don't have to keep spending more. Why would they bother to listen to you? Yeah, <laughs> many of them would want to just laugh you out of the room, right? What do you, what do you mean not spend more? Um, but, I, but I think what we've been able to, to see and to show is that there is, it's important for government spending not to continue to grow excessively. And we need a tangible maximum threshold for us to be able to hold on to, whether it be the members themselves, the legislative members, or the public or you know, interest groups like think tanks to be able to highlight. And that's what's been nice about the conservative Texas budget. For example, in 2021, before the legislative appropriation request went in by state agencies, we issued our conservative Texas budget. We said it, that it's $246.8 billion, and it's based on a 5% growth rate in population growth plus inflation over the last two fiscal years. So we use actual data, not some forecast or something else. Um, we put that number out. What was interesting is that the Senate's budget, when they released it, like in February, um, it was below population growth. It was below the 246.8 billion, if you exclude the uh, po the property tax relief of 6.1 billion dollars, which we would because that's not going to grow government. And then what was interesting is that the House's version of the budget was exactly 246.8 billion dollars. It's almost like they were looking at our number or something, right? Because they had a lot yeah. more money than that. I mean, we had an expected amount of about $260 billion. So they had a lot more money that they could have spent. Even during a time of the, the shutdowns and the pandemic and everything else, there's still a lot of sales tax and revenue. even in Texas, in. $10 billion means something. Yeah, yeah. And so to your point, it was like, look, if we didn't have that limit in place, they would have been spending all of the way, all of the new revenue that mm -hmm. came in. But this gave them a tangible something to hold on to. Uh, what do you want to be done with all the money that you don't spend? Provide tax relief. <laughs> you know, we've, we've already in Texas, we've got a, um, a rainy day fund, what we call our economic stabilization fund. That's primarily funded by oil and gas severance taxes. Right. Um, that's got $12 billion in it. So that and, and they didn't even touch it much. I think there was about a couple hundred million that they used, but it not touched much. Um, and we're still running a surplus of about $7.85 billion right now uh, because of the good work that they've done, um, because the $10 billion was kind of put off into other places, and they didn't get the exact same amount of revenue that they thought. So it came down to a $7.85 billion surplus, right, um, which was another good reason why to, to limit spending, because you never know exactly what those revenue projections, if it's mm -hmm. going to be the actual amount that comes in. 
Um, and so now in our special uh, session for listeners, Texas uh, gets a lot of oil and gas severance tax, uh, tax revenue. That's going to be a volatile amount because it's a volatile market. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's a boom and bust kind, kind of place and the lawmakers have to budget for that. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, we've got $7.85 billion in surplus. And what we're suggesting now is a lot of that go to provide um, property tax relief. That's really one of our big tax burdens. It ranks the sixth highest in the nation, according to the Tax Foundation for Homeowners. Um, and some will argue, well, it's because Texas is one of those nine states that doesn't have an income tax, personal income tax, which I'm thankful we don't, hope we never mm-hmm. do. Um, but if you look at places like Florida, Florida's property tax burden is about middle of the pack. I think they're like 26th, yet they don't have a personal income tax. It's really about excessive spending. You know, one of my favorite economists, Milton Friedman, said the ultimate burden of government is not how much it taxes, but but how much it spends. And that's really where you have to look at is the budget, which is why we wanted to put such a focus on it with the conservative Texas budget. And and what's been great about this now, James, is we've been um, I've been working with other states now. Um, the Tax Education Foundation over in Iowa, um, Beacon Center in Tennessee, uh, Frontier Institute in Montana. I hope to work with you all soon on, on something to get the uh, conservative budget you know, thought process going there. But we're continuing to expand this with my hope of one day having this be in every state. Um, I had the opportunity to work in the Trump White House as the chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget and was able to even get some insights on the federal budget process. And so we've also put out what we call the responsible American budget. That's got a lot higher hill uh, to climb. But if we don't start now, I think back to Reagan, if not now, when, if not who, and we need it now. And we, and we are the ones that need to start working on this. So I do want to follow up a little bit more on why lawmakers listen to you, because that's the most important thing here. Like you can recommend whatever, but there's a there's a lot. There's every spending interest in Austin wants them to ignore your advice. So how is it that you're able to convince them to change that default assumption about how much you're going to spend each year? No, I think part of it is doing sound research and making sure that you have the good, you know, white papers that are easily being able able to understand for lawmakers and their staff, having those meetings and meeting with a number of members um, and just continuing to press that message through a strong communications campaign, which we've been able to do really well here at the foundation and and we'll continue to work on that. Uh, And so I think between those different efforts, along with Looking at polling, we've been starting to do a lot of polling over the years to see what voters want. And while voters in general don't want to spend more, what they want is spending more on their specific areas of interest. And Mm -hmm. so you have to balance all these things out. And that's one thing that's nice about the conservative Texas budget is it's a macro spending limit. It's not coming in and saying you only need to spend X on education or healthcare. It's saying, here's the macro number. Now you go in and have the flexibility of how much is going in internal to that. And so I think by doing those things, it's been a great push. It's also been helpful to have good state leadership. Um, Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, um, they've also been pressing very hard about keeping spending within population growth and inflation. So that's been very helpful. Um, and then this session, which was nice, they not only passed the conservative Texas budget, but they even passed a stronger state spending limit here in Texas that puts most uh, puts much of the conservative Texas budget into law. And so now we are going to have this moving forward, um, no matter what the partisan landscape may look like. So I think that's interesting. It's one, make, make sure you've got a compelling argument you, that you've done your homework. 
and then work on the, the conventional tactics to get heard, which are inside out politics where you're meeting with lawmakers, um, you're, you're trying to talk to them directly that this is an important thing, you're addressing all of their concerns about it. And then outside in politics where you're saying, and your people, your supporters want it. We think that there's a climate of popular opinion out there that is sympathetic to this point and that we can accomplish a lot more things if you if you adopt our ideas uh, rather than just to spend all the money uh, that you've got. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, and another key point with this is it allows us to be um, for something. What we often get into with you know fiscal conservatives is what we want to be against. Mm-hmm. Vote no on this, vote no on that, and just be a common chorus of no Whereas this gives you something to be for and, and putting that out there has also been helpful, even with um, folks who don't normally agree with us. They at least understand what the metric is and what we're trying to do. And so that that's been really helpful. How does a person become a state budget critic? What's that again? How, how did you become a oh. state budget critic? Yeah, yeah. Um, or how can someone else? Yeah, I, I you know, I really think it goes back to seeing my parents struggle with finances growing up and seeing my parents when they divorced, when I was at a young age, single, my single mom, um, you know, working multiple jobs, sometimes seeing how that really can hurt the family in some capacity. Right. And so when it goes to the government level, I don't just think about government should be funded like a family. I think it should be even stricter than a family because it's not their money. (laughs) It's someone else's money. You don't spend someone else's money like you would your own money. And so whenever I come in and think about a, a budget and being a strong budget hawk, I'm going to go back to those days when I saw my mom struggle. And if I see my mom struggling, I sure as heck want the, the politicians to be struggling to, to figure out how to spend the hard-earned money of taxpayers all across the state. Where can people learn more about the Texas budget? Well, you can find more at our website, texaspolicy.com. I'm also on Twitter, pretty active there at Vance Ginn. Um, I have a personal newsletter on Substack, vanceginn.substack.com would be another area where you can find more about state budgeting, federal budgeting, and some other things, uh, some other fun stuff on economics along the way. Vance, thank you for coming on and, uh, and congratulations for having shifted the Overton window. Thank you so much, James. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.